language, and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to the Must Be Destroyed on Site movie podcast. I'm joined by my co-host Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? Doing uh, pretty well. Hanging right out, on. drinking some beers. Paying camp, for, you know, paying on YouTube for shitty old horror movies. Yeah, no, uh, I uh, I did end up having to. Uh, well, I didn't have to. I was uh, lazy enough that spending two dollars was less effort than spending another five minutes looking for the movie. So I guess that, you know, you know what my time is worth now. Uh, so uh, we're doing our slasher movie uh, month, and we're getting off to a great start here because uh, plans got fucked up. So Paul is not quite joining us tonight. Uh, Are you saying we're getting split up? We're getting we're, split we're up. Splitting, we're getting split up. Yeah, and, uh, we might get stalked by uh, some some person with a, an axe or a knife. Yeah, we're doing the exact wrong thing to do. Yeah. We're splitting up. But yeah, uh, things got a little messed up. Hope to record with Paul tomorrow and either join the two segments together or you'll never ever hear this and know that this happened and you'll hear us all together recording a show. So either way, whatever's going to happen. But uh, we decided to pick horror movies that are sort of specific to the 80s. Uh, first, we were going to do a summer camp slasher kind of uh, series, but the logistics of it were kind of troublesome because it was like, well, uh, Daniel would have to pay for about half the movies we're going to pick on this list. So <laughs> we, 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 I, I tried desperately to find stuff that was free on YouTube for him. Uh, that didn't work out as well either, but uh, whatever. But uh, And we also tried to pick uh, stuff that was not necessarily top-of-the-line, well-known slasher movies, like more like, I guess, maybe B-level slasher movies to a degree a lot of them are cult classics but they're not generally known by the by the public you know they're not pop culture slasher films i guess is the best way to put it before we get into those we have no questions or comments this this week so uh bad viewers bad listeners poo poo on you you're terrible people for not sending us comments really exactly we we Um, shit on our audience that's what we do here on this podcast we hate you all. Um, uh, <laughs> um, because we do so much work to put this podcast out yeah. uh, every week. I mean, our livelihoods depend on this shit, damn it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, Daniel's just telling me how poor he was earlier. I mean, yeah, I haven't been able to pay him for weeks now. It's so it's terrible. Yeah, I know it's crazy. <laughs> Where, where's my you know Where's my two thousand dollar check for this podcast? Come yeah. <laughs> um, you know you know what they call podcasting a zero sum game because nobody makes any money off it unless you're this American Life. Yeah, unless you're like Kevin or, Smith or somebody. Mark Maron or Kevin Smith, yeah. yeah. And even then, Kevin Smith has to tour around with Hollywood Babylon to make us some extra scratch. First, we're going to get into something we were uh, talking about last week. Daniel suggested that you could come up with a list of stuff surrounding artificial intelligence in uh, both written form and uh, movie form. We were talking about Computer Chess last week, which was a movie yeah. about artificial intelligence, so that's what sort of sparked the idea. And I was like, yeah, go ahead, Daniel, make up a list. So uh, I'll turn it over to you, sir. Sure. Um, first, and again, uh, some a little bit of spoilers here for computer chess, because I I did actually start recording. I kind of thought about possible alternate, alternate interpretations of computer chess. And one of the obvious ones that we didn't really consider or we didn't really talk about was simply that uh, the uh, main character, that he's essentially just losing his grip with reality. 
and that much of, you know, the computer isn't really only wanting to play with human beings and, you know, the rest of the stuff isn't really happening. Mm. He's just cracking under the stress of uh, this competition and being a, a computer genius, you know, a grad student or some whatever, um, which I think is also a very plausible interpretation of at least yeah, this section of the film. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's actually a, that's a good point because most of the movie spent with, uh, when he's in it, he's sort of talking to his uh, mentor or whatever, the sort of team leader or whatever comes in to check on them in right. the computer. And he's well, the, really, the kind of high up, you know, the yeah. verified name, the artificial intelligence field in this computer chess field. And he's talking to him and the guy has a really good point of like, you don't have enough data to even begin to justify what you're telling me, you know? Um, there is that kind of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence kind of thing, and you know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, look, ultimately, I need you to if you want if you want to prove this to me, I need to know more, you know. And so you can interpret that as like he's just being reasonable, or you can interpret it as I don't know. It's kind of one of those. I just I just thought I'd mention it because I, you know, I realized I didn't say it on the show last week. The other thing that I uh, was going to do was I, I said I'd put together, and maybe this is just going to be my segment from now on is. Based on the conversation we have, I put together a list of things that I think are interesting based on that, um, because I actually did have some fun kind of putting together this list. Not that it's a comprehensive list, but uh, some stuff that I've read that's that kind of based around artificial intelligence and some movies that I would recommend to people who are interested in uh, kind of mathematics or... We'll, we'll get into that here shortly. There's a lot of treatment in science fiction of... AI and uh, kind of what that means. And probably the best place to start is uh, Asimov's iRobot. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a short story collection um, published in, I believe, 49, uh, sometime around there, 49, 50, 51. Um, but it's a uh, series of short stories that were all published in the early 40s. Asimov is, is very well known for his three laws of robotics, but um, a lot of people don't realize that he went a lot further than that, that a lot of the stories are, they start out as kind of logical puzzles of, you know, how do you work out the details of how these laws would work? But then he eventually gets into kind of bigger questions of what does it mean to be intelligent? What does it mean to be a created being? And, um, I think iRobot is a great... He wrote a bunch of robot stuff over his career. I mean, in particular, uh, any of his stuff is great, but starting with that, if you're if you're at all interested in uh, kind of science fictional treatments of, you know, kind of what artificial intelligence would mean, um, Asimov is a great place to start. He's a golden age science fiction writer, so that means everything that you might think it means from style, and, you know, there, there's just kind of no... There's not a lot of plot. Like, yeah. Those are basically idea stories. Definitely an, a great place to start. Another book published in the late 70s, which would have been uh, very much on the mind of our characters in Computer Chess. I guarantee you that every character in that movie, if they were a real person, would have read this or at least been familiar with it. Um, is a book called A Godel Escher Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid. Um, this is written by a man named Douglas Hofstadter, who's still around. He is a uh, philosophy of mind kind of guy. Mm. Um, he did a lot of work in computers starting in the early 70s um, and kind of working on uh, formal logic, symbolic logic systems. This starts out as this kind of very lighthearted, fun look at what are called closed-loop systems, systems that can learn to recognize themselves, and uh, kind of an, a dance through art and music and science and computing and you know that sort of thing. And towards the end, it becomes this very dense book of symbolic logic, essentially. And, uh, you know, whole chapters are basically deriving theorems in... Uh, in this kind of arcane prepositional calculus. Um, So most people do not get all the way through the book. 
unless you are a mathematician or a computer scientist. But it's something I read in high school, and I think it uh, would be really enjoyable if the ideas of computer chess, if you want to get a really kind of deep look at what those characters might have been under. Um, another book that's probably a little bit more enjoyable and gives you a kind of a bird's eye view of the stuff is a book called The Mind's Eye. And that's I with the letter I, like the ego, um, not an I like, you know, eyeball. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is a, a collection of essays uh, with commentary by, uh, again, Douglas Hofstadter, the same guy who wrote Good Ole Sherbach, and uh, Daniel Dennett, who kind of got to be known a few years ago as one of the kind of lesser-known new atheist people. I should note that uh, both Hofstadter and Dennett have written more recent books that have been a lot more, a little more controversial than these because they're kind of stuck in kind of old ideas about what, you know, the philosophy of Minefield has moved on from where it was in 1982 or whatever. Um, yeah. But The Mind's Eye uh, collects a lot of the old science fiction stories and then puts commentary on it from a philosophy of mind point of view. Ends up with a uh, kind of in de- detailed treatise on Searle's Chinese uh, room hypothesis of artificial intelligence, which you don't have to know what that is. But it is kind of the one major um, argument against the idea that computers could ever learn to think. And I think uh, Dennett and Hofstadter just completely demolish it um, in this book. And uh, this one is much more pointed at uh, lay people. And it is a very kind of introductory look at that. So those are my three books that I would recommend if you were uh, looking to kind of get a a general idea. And again, I'm not an artificial intelligence researcher. I don't know what the the cutting edge of the field is. Um, There are a lot of great resources out there if you're interested in that. I have have enough of a knowledge of it to know that I don't really know anything about it. Let's put it that way. And then I've got three movies for you, uh, two of which I've actually mentioned on this podcast before. But one is Pi, uh, mm-hmm. Darren Aronofsky's first film, which I assume you've seen. Yeah. Um, this one is a little bit more about kind of uh, math and how uh, the world relates to mathematics and that sort of thing. Kind of descent into madness. But it um, does, again, portray that kind of mindset of what these characters would be in. And when I started thinking about that, that was when I started to think, like, maybe the guy in computer chess is just going nuts, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And the other two are more recent, um, Ex Machina, which I think should be out on DVD pretty soon, which is a, a recent film uh, about uh, this guy working on you know, true artificial intelligence. And uh, another film, the um, Spike Jones film from a couple of years ago, Her, which I know you haven't seen. I've recommended to you like three times. You don't have to watch it, but it is, uh, I think it, it has really uh, interesting implications for these kind of artificial is that, on, uh, net, is that on Netflix I don't yet? think it's streaming yet. If it was, I probably would have found it already and watched just, it again. I don't, I don't remember coming across it on Netflix. Or yeah, I, I, think, I think that would have been a little, big enough that you would have seen it happen if it was going to happen. So, But yeah, when that one shows up on streaming service somewhere, I think we're going to have to discuss that one because I, I yeah. think that one is... Uh, I could almost go through that one scene by scene and talk about some of the deeper levels of meaning to that. But it is a, a really good film, and it does uh, kind of, again, present some of these ideas in, a, in an accessible way. I think. Yeah, that was my uh, long treatise on stuff that most of our listeners probably don't care about, but uh, <laughs> enjoy if yeah, you right are on. so inclined. Yeah, Come for the slasher you. movie discussion and with talk about higher-level mathematics. This yeah, is, so uh, we've already deflated all the slasher boners. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah, awesome. Uh, is there anything you watched this week that... Uh, I, I did. I actually saw the third man on the big screen. Oh, did you? Nice. Um, the Alamo was showing it us their Sunday matinee. I had seen it a couple of times before on DVD. <laughs> Shana, my wife, she didn't know the movie at all. She uh, said, I'll go with you, fine. I was like, no, we have to go. This is a requirement. <laughs> if, if the third man plays on a big screen within 10 miles of you, 
you go see it. It doesn't. That's that's just it. That's just in my opinion. That's what happens. So we did, and she really enjoyed it as well. I mean, I think uh, she was she was definitely. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of our listeners will have seen the film already, but it kind of it's one of those like classic noir pictures. Um, kind of late period noir, um, tons of brilliant black and white photography, phenomenal performances all around. Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, yeah, one of the just, uh, one of the best film entrances ever for a character when uh, Orson Welles shows up. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, the thing is, like, by the time he shows up in the movie, you've almost forgotten he's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Shanna mentioned when she, because I just kind of, I told her the general idea of it and just said, okay, we're gonna go see it. She said it's funnier than I thought it was going to be, and there are yeah. like there is a very kind of mordant but very uh, strong sense of humor in the film, and I think that's something that gets overlooked sometimes. People talk about it, but um, yeah, there's a there's a European American culture clash in the film that sort of right. brings on the comic comedy a bit, yeah. Well, and there's some of that um, slapsticky, like like uh, you know the cockatoo that bites his finger, mm-hmm. and you know that sort of thing. There, there's a little bit of, of that kind of stuff in the. Uh, the bits with the uh, literature appreciation society that think he's uh-huh. a great author, and then it turns out, you know, no, I write, I write westerns. You know, yeah. so <laughs> I, I I like to think uh, because uh, Graham Greene wrote the uh, screenplay for that, and then I didn't realize that he wrote the novella afterwards. Yeah, based yeah. on the based on the movie. So, and I'm sure Graham Greene uh, knew that knew those kind of audiences very well. I think he was poking fun at, at his own subculture a little bit yeah. there, but, uh, so yeah, no, that's a phenomenal film. And if you have the chance, if you haven't seen it, you should definitely see it. Um, and if you, uh, haven't seen it on the big screen, you should do that too. If you have the opportunity. So mm. yeah, that's, that's all I got. I watched some documentaries, but nobody wants to hear me talk anymore about, you know, frontline documentaries. <laughs> Uh, I only watched two things really of note this week. First one was Pierce Brosnan's The November Man from 2014, mm-hmm. which was just his, uh, I guess, his latest uh, attempt to uh, recapture some of his James Bond glory. You think he'd be trying to escape the typecasting a bit, you know? But uh, I guess this is a project he's had in the works before he was even out of the Bond series. From from what I've uh, read, it's not bad, but it's this very pedestrian kind of spy film that feels maybe like ten years out of date at this point. Like it just feels like it's trying to play catch up with the Bourne series. Well acted, but um, just very pretty much by the numbers plot. But I kind of enjoyed it. I, I kind of thought Pierce Brosnan had sort of gotten over this sort of thing though after uh, the Matador. I don't know if you ever seen that one. Yeah, I I am not uh, familiar with Pierce Brosnan's post uh, Tomorrow Never Dies career really. Like her, uh, Wars on Enough. That was the last one. Pretty much, he left Bond, and then uh, it's it's not so much. Uh, no, Die Another Day. That was the last one. That's right. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, that was uh, Halle Berry one. Oh uh, yeah, I never watched that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually saw that with my dad in the theater. That was uh, one of those uh, things. I went down to visit that summer or that the Christmas or whatever, and my dad and I saw it because he, you know, kind of loved the old James Bond stuff. So, but I didn't grow up with it, so. But yeah, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, Pierce Brosnan. I mean, he. I think he gets a little slagged off on, you know, as Bond. I, I don't think he was a terrible Bond. I think he was, uh, you know, I don't know. I kind of these days, I kind of more think of him as uh, the guy from a Hot Fuzz. That's probably what yeah. I connect him with. You know? Yeah. No, he's a he's an excellent actor. Uh, the, the last couple Bond films, like act, actually, pretty much after Goldfinger, the first one, or not Gold, Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Yeah. Um, Pretty much after Golden, I, th- I think most of the scripts for the the, ne- the next ones were they weren't that good. They were just right. reliant more on special effects and shit than anything else. And well, that's the broccoli family, you know. So yeah, but uh, yeah. So I, it, November Man's 
worth seeing if you catch it on Netflix or whatever, but it's, you know, it's not something to go the way for. Uh, but one everyone should fucking see, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, called Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. I and read an article about this mm-hmm. like the day before yesterday, so yes, please continue. It, it is, sounds fascinating. It is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the best documentaries on a movie I've ever, ever seen, mainly because it is just so fair and well-balanced. Like, a lot of times you see documentaries about movies that were... Essentially, this is about a movie that was never made. I mean, Richard... If people don't know Richard Stanley, who did Dust Devil and Hardware, two sort of more indie-ish genre films that got him really uh, noticed by the big studios, and so they gave him uh, Dr. Moreau. It was like, hey, we have Dr. Moreau under development, um, New Line Cinema. So, like, we'll throw some money at you. He said he could do it for cheap. He could do it for, like, $8 million or something like that. We're like, all right, we'll, we'll give it to you. You write the script and whatever and get it all done. Uh, start start the production. And the problem is that Richard Stanley, um, not only is he an auteur, he is certifiably fucking crazy. Like, <laughs> the, the guy's nuts. And he he's just too nuts for the studio system, and they wanted to put more control on him. They started bringing in more stars. They brought in Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando, which upped the budget by, you know, like two or three times the original amount. Brando and Kilmer were just fucking monsters on the set. Like, just, in, like, this was at the height of Kilmer's fame, where he was just, he thought he was top shit, apparently, and he was just bullying people around. Uh, Marlon Brando was just actively sabotaging the entire film on purpose. Uh, this was around the time when I think his daughter died and he was having all kinds of other family problems and stuff like that. So he, he wanted to rewrite the script and shut the production down and stuff like that. So Stanley got fired and they brought in uh, John Frankenheimer to uh, basically redo the entire film, reshoot the entire film. And that's what you got in 1990, what, five it was, I think, that the movie yeah. came out. Yeah. And that movie really sucks like it's not that good um i've I've actually not seen it but you know it was uh not highly recommended no it's just really weird but not in a good way yeah yeah you you see uh stanley's there's there's a train wreck element you know it was kind of what i what i've always gotten the impression of you know yeah you see stanley's uh concept designs and man there's no way that movie would have been made because the stuff he wanted to do is just so weird but at the same time so really interesting like it would have been one of the most interesting movies i think if he had managed to actually put his vision on the screen instead of having the studios basically push him around and bully him around um it's fucking great just go watch it see all the horror stories of how the studio interferes with a movie it it was just really funny to me like it wasn't the fact that stanley is this like guy is obsessed with spaghetti western imagery and he thinks he's like a shaman and he believes in witchcraft and he had like a warlock cast a spell on the production of the of the set and uh and everything like that um that's not what weirded out some of the people in new line what weirded out one of the guys in new line was that he came into their first meeting and he ordered uh when everyone was taking coffee orders he ordered a black coffee with four sugars Apparently that was too fucking out there for this guy in New Line. Like, I knew there was something wrong with this guy. Like, wow, wow, these people are just so fucking out of touch. It's unbelievable. But uh, whenever you hear stories, especially in the in the nineties, I, I feel like there are so many stories in the nineties of studio executives who just had no idea what was going. Yeah. I mean, and filmmakers who, quite frankly, I mean, were you know let just given full reign sometimes and made crazy, crazy shit that 
maybe you should have reined them in a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm not one to say that, you know, every every great every filmmaker is a born artist who should be left yeah, completely alone. Well, there, there's, you know, there's, the, yeah, studios, there's a, the studios exist for a reason, you know. Yeah, I mean, there is a good example of uh, New Line doing the same stuff and actually making the movie better, and that would be American History X, where the original director wanted to really fuck around with the story and the ending Tony was... Tony yeah, yeah, the story the story was totally different. Apparently he had Edward Furlong in his ear, like, giving him suggestions and stuff. And I'm like, really? You're going to listen to Edward Furlong about anything? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, Except how to say Hasta La Vista, baby. You know, that's it. That's the only thing. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it was it was just bizarre. And, I mean, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd like to say the joke's on New Line because, you know, they, they eventually somehow – went bankrupt after releasing the Lord of the Rings trilogy and making billions of dollars. Somehow they went bankrupt after that. <laughs> but, you know, Richard Stanley was the weirdo that you had to kick off your set and, and get someone else to do the movie, right? There but, was this uh, very brief period where New Line was like, for me, New Line was what I... Th- that studio was like the great studio for me because they had P.T. Anderson was making films with them. Mm-hmm. Two of his best films, I think, or, or, or at least two of his early films were made at New Line. And, I mean, that was when they were giving people like creative control over this stuff to be like, look, you know, uh, you know, I think they, they learned some lessons. I think the real issue was once they both spent and then made all that money, um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they kind of didn't know where to go from there. Because yeah. they were always this like little tiny like schlocky film studio, and then they made billions of dollars, and they started putting like the massive marketing budget that they had for the the marketing campaigns that they had for uh, the Lord of the Rings pictures. The very next big movie they put out was Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. Yeah, <laughs> and I remember they had ads that were like it felt like a Lord of the Rings style event for like Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. And you know that's when you know there nobody knows what the fuck they're doing over there right now. Mm-hmm. They just they they're just high on their own supply at this point. So um, I suspect that had a lot to do with it. Was you know you know like lottery winners that that don't know how to budget their money and don't know how to and so they just spend it all and then they're broke. You know two years <laughs> later, it's yeah. like well I mean it happens. I mean it really does. I mean yeah. anyway sorry. Yeah, and the sad thing is uh, Richard Stanley essentially doesn't have a career anymore. He essentially got blacklisted out of Hollywood after getting kicked off that. Uh, so uh, I'm not, I'm not saying Richard Stanley was a superb, great visionary, like the next, the next fucking Werner Herzog or something like that, you know, but he's like hardware dust devil. They're both on Netflix right now. If people are interested in checking those out and those are both really good genre films and uh, definitely check out this documentary. If you're, if you have any interest in, sort of the behind the scenes stuff and filmmaking and stories about what, what goes on on actual film sets. This is pretty, it's pretty much the best film I've seen about that sort of thing. I think. Have you seen a Jodorowsky's Dune yet? Yeah, I have. Um, I actually, um, I wanted, I wanted to bring that up as a sort of a counterpoint to this in that I was, I'm saying how this one is much more fair and balanced in a way, because it's not, it's, it's not idolizing the what may have been it's it's not saying oh if richard stanley had made this film it would have been the greatest fucking film ever because in in jordanarski's dune uh there's a lot of that like there's a lot of oh this would have been the most amazing fucking movie ever you know like you don't really know that okay it it, it, it definitely probably would have been better than what uh, they ended up with but you know (laughs) yes i agree all right 
so yeah, check those out. Um, and uh, I guess we'll get right into the movies here. Many strange things happen around here. There is a tale. It was a night like tonight, many years ago. There is a legend. If you say his name above a whisper, he'll get you. There is a warning. On certain nights, when the moon is full, he's out there stalking in the woods. There is a madman. His name is Mars. Mad Man Mars. Mars! Mad Man Mars! Here we are! Come and get us, Mad Man! Don't you realize you're fooling with things beyond your control? start off yeah we're gonna start off our slasher uh series and we're gonna start with 1982's madman uh directed by joe gioni i don't know if that's pronounced correct correctly or not also written by him and gary sales uh starring galen ross uh who people might remember from uh dawn of the dead as fran although she goes under the name uh, alexis dubin in this film or at least she originally did but um uh, we have tony fish as tp which probably stands for toilet paper. I don't, I don't recall in the film, but uh, uh, Harriet Bass is Stacy. Seth Jones is Dave. Jan Claire is Ellie. Alexander Murphy Jr. is Bill. Tom Candela is Richie. Frederick Newman is Max. And Michael Sullivan is Dippy. And Paul Ullers as Madman Mars. This is a, this is a movie that uh, was originally based around sort of telling a, a story based around the Cropsey legend. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, Daniel, are you? I'm not, no. I guess in New York State, there's this sort of uh, urban legend that sort of has developed over the basically the later half of the last century. Um, Cropsey, it, it used to be just a name that you heard once in a while spread around as something parents used to scare kids, right, just sort of an urban legend kind of thing. But it eventually kind of grew more and more to the point where urban legend almost became reality in a way. They sort of meshed together. There's this really great documentary from 2009 called Cropsey. Uh, and the C-R-O-P-S-E-Y. It's on Netflix and YouTube. I highly recommend that one as well. There used to be, I guess, on... Um, it was uh, Staten Island, I believe, uh, in, in New York. They had this mental institution that closed down, but a lot of the patients ended up going back and living there because they had nowhere else to go, so they were sort of living on the grounds. And back then, it was a highly wooded area, and some children started to disappear in the area. And eventually, they... Uh, 
caught and put in jail. This guy they suspected of uh, kidnapping and killing a couple kids, and he was, you know, he was uh, he was mentally retarded. People started to get paranoid and, and creeped out, and the sort of the Cropsy legend sort of started to grow. That sort of urban legend kind of thing actually sort of came in the re- into real life, like a real life Cropsy kind of thing, you know, stealing kids and killing people in the woods and stuff like that. Really, really excellent uh, documentary. Highly recommended. It's very unsettling. Like, it's, it's, it's not specifically a horror movie, but it's, it is a kind of a really horrific documentary in a lot of ways where you see the way an entire community was shattered by this uh, sort of real-life occurrence surrounding a, an urban legend. But anyway... This sounds way more interesting than Mad Men. It is. It really is. <laughs> but anyway, they were they were originally going to go with something a, a, around that, but they had to change in the last minute uh, because another movie being shot called The Burning, which we're going to cover later on in the series, was already sort of uh, based around the Cropsey legend. So they changed it to Madman. Uh, it was originally going to be um, Madman, The Legend Lives, but they just shortened it to Madman. Uh, it was shot in uh, November 1980 uh, in Southampton, Long, Long Island. And I'll just uh, I'll go to you right first, Daniel, if you want to give your initial thoughts on this one. Sure, I, I'll be honest. You know, I, I kind of you know I'm like I'll watch anything. I've got no problems with it. Uh, horror is probably my it's certainly the genre I watch the least. I hardly ever sit down and go, yeah, let's watch a horror movie. It's just kind of um, I I just kind of find it yeah all right sure um, unless there's some kind of something to dig my teeth into you know more conceptually. Uh, but I definitely am interested in watching all these movies just to kind of get the uh, the Lee and Paul crash course in, in slasher movies. So uh, you know, I'm I'm going into this swinging, you know, and trying to <laughs> trying to get what I can get out of it. Uh, Man Man, quite frankly, bored the shit out of me uh, for uh, about the middle third, at the very least. There's a, there's some clever stuff here. You know, it feels very it feels very cheap. It feels like kind of a Halloween ripoff. I mean, to to a to a degree to where it really does just feel like a cash grab. It doesn't feel like there was like really kind of artistic intent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of enjoyed the ending of the film. Uh, the girl, you know, kind of kind of being chased, and I and I thought that there was some clever stuff there. The my favorite kill was the uh, the noose wrapped around the guy's neck, where he's yeah. uh, pulled up over in a, in a very cartoonish way. I might add, you know. As if the the titular madman is a um, figure of uh, enormous strength, who can also then at the end be killed with a small penknife. So uh, <laughs> you know, we'll keep that in mind. Uh, um, but he's, he's not killed in the end, though. So well, sure. Um, <laughs> slow down at the very least. Yeah. You know? I thought it was it was worth ninety minutes of my time, but you know, I'll, I'll admit during the middle section, I was kind of glazing over just a little bit. Just kind of, I I don't feel like there's any tension to the film. I don't feel mm-hmm. like it really does anything. With premise, in particular the, the bit with the axe and the stump where I yeah. thought, you know, at the beginning the two guys are trying to pull the axe out of the stump and I thought oh, there's going to be some interesting bit of business that happens here later, you know, whether either the killer, you know, does something clever with it or the uh, people being chased by the killer you know, can't get it out of the stump or maybe they can or maybe, you know they find some, you know, in a better film you know, you'd find something, you, you'd you'd set that up and then you do something with it, and then later on it's just supposed to, I guess, show the madman's enormous strength that he can pull it out of the... which mm-hmm. I guess is fine. I don't know what else I have to say about Madman, honestly. Uh, your thoughts, Lee? Are you going to tell me I'm, a, I'm an idiot for, for not seeing this for the cinematic genius that it is? No, oh, no. I did like um, the score. I didn't... Yeah, well, we'll get to the score. Um, I, when, I, when I was going through this list with Paul, I was trying to think of ones that I could 
because uh, we had you in mind too as as well and, and stuff we wanted to uh, interu- introduce you to because uh, as listeners may know Paul and I are much more into horror films than Daniel is to 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 a degree so I'm not a horror film junkie so you know it's fine I, yeah. I I'm enjoying it though so uh, I actually wanted to start with Madman because it's probably one of the most pedestrian by the numbers sort of uh, slasher in the woods films you can think of that is also doesn't really have much to it, but it's still quite competently made all, all the same. Like, it's, you know, it's not like one of those really, really cheap, bad ones that just looks bad, because this is all yeah. shot in night photography, and it's actually all really, looks really good for what they got yeah. out of it, right? Technically speaking, it's, it, technically speaking, it looks good. I mean, it doesn't look fake. It looks, you know, it looks good. I'm, I would, I'm not in any way trying to, uh, to, to knock on the filmmakers, you know, the technical expertise, it's more just, you know, on the kind of script level, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was budgeted for $350,000, and it uh, grossed uh, $530,000. So, you know, it was, a, it was a moderate sort of drive-in kind of success kind of thing. Um, well, I don't, maybe not drive-in at that point, but uh, it was on. It was only on, like, 72 screens. It was a very limited release. I mean, this was the it, kind of... It cost some money, it made some money for the people that made it. Yep. And then they went on and did other things like that's well, that, you know. Well, hardly anyone went on to do anything else in this film. Well, that's they the went on. They went on to become real estate agents or whatever. That yeah. was kind of more what I was implying, but you know. Yeah, um, I mean, everyone here was pretty much first-time actors, except for like Galen Ross and uh, the guy who played the older counselor, Frederick Newman. Uh, but most of these other people, this was the first time acting, and it, and it definitely shows. I mean, Paul was, you know, quote-unquote here. He would probably agree that the acting level was so, somewhere on par with, like, Friday the 13th Part 5. You know, it was it was about that good. Galen Ross definitely stands out, he, although she doesn't really have a lot to work with. She at least competently looks like she's a real person in a real situation, you know. And, man, does she fucking look hot in this film, by the way. Um, oh, no, Absolutely. I, I, I thought she looked good in Dawn of the Dead, but this is like this is like four years afterwards, and she blossomed quite a bit, I must say. And of course, she also is nice enough to show off some of her bare skin in the hot tub scene early on in the yeah, film. Yeah, the, the extended sequence where they are doing circles in the in the hot tub. I was, yeah. you know, okay, yeah, they're okay. Here's okay, I, all right. I guess this is what this movie is right now. We yeah, had, it's, uh, it's uh, we had a couple minutes to fill with footage. I, I get it. All right, nope. it's not. It's not. Yeah, it's not quite the uh, it's not quite the sex scene in Showgirls in the swimming pool, but uh, no, you know. <laughs> not not quite that good. Yeah, I like the production on this a lot. Uh, there there are some really good ideas in it, but as you said, they really don't come together with much for it. Like they just like they set it up with the sort of urban legend thing. Like I really like the setup with the campfire tale thing where they start off and that guy starts singing the Madman Mars song, and then, then the older counselor takes over and tells the story of Madman Mars, sets it all up really nice. So so that's really interesting. So you think something like really kind of spooky is going to happen, and then really it's not all that spooky. It's the uh, wise-ass guy in the group. He, he, he makes the mistake of calling out Madman Mars's name really loud, which is the thing you're not supposed to do. And then he sees Madman Mars, and then this fucking character... Bumbles and stumbles through the rest of the fucking film. He gets to Madman Mars' house. Doesn't seem too phased by what he sees in there at first. He leaves the house, gets lost in the woods, comes back to the fucking house, sees Madman Mars a couple times. How Madman Mars hasn't killed him in the woods three or four times, all, all the fucking walking around he's doing, I don't know. But Who who wants consistency from a, from a thing like this? You know, really? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, I, 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 I mean, don't don't pay attention to the logic. Don't try to map out these characters' journeys ever. You know. That's yeah, the, I just. Uh, I just found it amusing how he basically stumbles around the woods the entire film, and they don't really do anything with him other than make him like the guy who goes crazy at the end, you know, uh, who yeah. survives and goes nuts. Uh, they do sort of change up the formula a bit for slasher films. Not that there was really a formula back then that, you know, is now like referenced in Scream and stuff like that to these days, but back then there wasn't really still wasn't really established the final girl formula and right. the, you know, oh, let's go off alone in the dark and let's split up and stuff like that. There's none of that stuff is really was known back then. So, uh, but it's, it's interesting to see like the final girl doesn't survive killer gets away. The only survivor is left presumably gone nuts, you know, after witnessing all this shit. So I thought there was some interesting stuff there. Uh, I liked the makeup effects for Madman Mars and also the uh, gore effects I thought were really, really well done for the budget. I think they spent basically most of their money on those because they all looked pretty good as far as I was concerned. Yeah, yeah, no, nothing that looks you know, outright comical or uh, silly. Um, I think my favorite element of the, uh, the film actually is the fact that it's a, a summer camp with more counselors than kids. Yeah, um, um, you know, there are like five children in this entire camp. I think that's that's not a financially uh, well-run camp. I think it was a. I think it was supposed to be a camp for gifted students or something like that. So you assume maybe it's like a rich kids camp or something along those lines. But they never really they never really get into it, right? Like they never. You, you never get any like perspective on. It. Also, it, it appears that every every teenager in this camp is thirty years old. That's another. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm assuming it was, you know, like a uh, some sort of, like, retreat for gifted students or something like that. And I was kind of hoping that they were going to, like, incorporate the actual kids as well into it somehow. Mm-hmm. But they basically show up at the beginning of the film, they disappear for most of the film, and then they show up again so Galen Ross's character can put them on a bus and send them the fuck out of the camp. And that's about it. It's really expensive to have child actors in a film. That's that's yeah. all. <laughs> you know, like, like, you only have, okay... You can only work him for like three hours at a time or something, and uh, you know you shoot him at the beginning, you know you get a little bit of coverage, and you shoot him at the end, and then okay, where were you in the middle? Oh, they were asleep in the cabin. That's <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting fact: they were originally going to um, approach Vincent Price for the role of uh, the older counselor Max, mm-hmm. but uh, they, this was in a uh, union production, so they figured they wouldn't have a chance of getting them, so they just decided not to. The, the guy who did the music, uh, it was uh, Stephen Horlick and producer Gary Sales uh, did the music together. And I, th- I thought that was pretty effective. Like, it, it's kind of goofy in a little bit of a way, but it's also, yeah, it, yeah it, it, it's, it strikes a really weird tone as well. Yeah, it's that kind of era of the electronic score. I mean, it, it feels like they're trying to do they're trying to do Carpenter. They're trying to do the Carpenter ripoff, but it's a competent Carpenter rip ripoff. I, I thought, yeah. you know, and uh, you know, points towards maybe a better movie. Again, you know, one of the things I think you know I keep coming back to when you look at these kind of schlocky things, and I said this during the, uh, the sex comedy month as well. You know, was just on a certain level, if you don't have money, you know, good writing is free. Yeah. You know, so so you you can write like clever things. For free, essentially, and uh, you know that, that's just kind of where I land. If you if you're gonna do something with no budget, give me something else to, to come to it for either a good story or some cool effects or something. And this just kind of I don't know. There was very little to hold my attention in, in Bad Man, unfortunately. But yeah. um, you know, it was it was a, a time waster. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I enjoy it. Uh, this if if anyone's familiar with the Hatchet series uh, from I guess the 2000s, Bad uh, Man Mars is a and essentially some of the mechanics of the story 
they, they, it's pretty pretty big influence on that series, really. Like, uh, there's a lot of similarities. And yeah, that's really all I have to say about it. I I, I enjoy it for what it is. Um, it's not one that I think is necessarily one of the best slasher films ever. I can see why some people consider it a cult classic, uh, because it, it does have some sort of weird elements to it that are uh, you don't really find in a lot of other slasher films at the time, and also it helps that it went into sort of video obscurity for quite a while, like at the end of the VHS era, it kind of mm-hmm. disappeared for quite a while, so people were looking for it. And yeah, I mean, it's it's worth seeing. You can find it on YouTube for free. Uh, there's DVDs of it floating around everywhere. And, it, it, you know, it's it's a decent time waster. I, I think Mad Mad Mars deserves a better film. I think maybe they should remake this one. Like, I'm usually against remakes, but this was this would be one that they could incorporate more of the urban legend kind of story into it and maybe make it better. You know, as long as you don't make it a found footage film. Don't make it a found footage film. Just Directed straight... by Brett Ratner. Yeah. <laughs> With Chris Tucker as Batman Mars. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll just get to a couple of Paul's comments here, and hopefully we'll have them on audio in the second part of this podcast tomorrow. He says, uh, Bloody Murder is a bad slasher if you want to watch a bad one. Yeah, I've seen that one, and no one wants to watch that one, because that is pretty bad. Uh, although Bloody Murder 2 has a lot of nice titties in it. And he says, Blue Underground did a good release of Madman, and yes, they did. Uh, if you find the Blue Underground disc for cheap, pick it up. It's definitely worth your while, just just for the extras and for the uh, just the details behind it. I think the production details are more interesting than the actual film uh, overall. Yeah. You know, mild recommendation for me. Uh, I, I don't know if you would give it a mild recommendation or not, Daniel, but... If you're a genre completist, I guess you should you should watch it. I, I, I'm probably never going to watch it again or really think of it again. Quite honestly, I don't know that there's a reason to, but um, I would like to see a remake of it. I would like yeah. to see a, a, you know, the better version. I think there is a... Really, I want to see that documentary. That, that's kind of my next uh, goal. If I, yeah, I'm going to watch the documentary. is probably a better, uh, a better use of my time than watching this again. So. Yeah, that's a really good one. Actually, we should probably do an episode on that sometime. Documentary month. <laughs> I'd go yeah, for we that. Could, we could do it. We could do it. It was 1945. The night of the graduation dance. The war overseas had just ended. The terror at home was about to begin. Roy? Come on. Come on, kid. Don't play hard to get. What about New Year's Eve? That was different. I couldn't help myself. The Prowler. If he wants you, he'll get you. Tonight, the terror begins again. They never found out who did it. It had to be someone in town, someone who knew that she was called Rose. And Mark, that guy still might be around here. Oh, man, I don't believe this. You're talking about something that happened over 30 years ago. Whenever the time was right, he'd come back. The Prowler. If he wants you... He'll get you. 
Catch your breath. It starts all over again. You may think you're safe, but you're dead wrong. The Prowler, coming soon. We're going to move on now to The Prowler from 1981, directed by Joseph Zito, who uh, is probably better known, well, he's known for this one, but he's also known for doing Friday the 13th, the final chapter, uh, and two Chuck Norris uh, vehicles, uh, Missing in Action and Invasion USA. And so, Red Scorpion, which was produced by Jack Abramoff. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That was the uh, movie that Jack Abramoff made to uh, try to uh, convince people to, to hate communism and love Reagan. Written by Neil Barbera and Glenn Leopold, uh, starring Vicky Dawson as Pam McDonald, Christopher Goutman as Mark London, Lawrence Tierney, who is a favorite actor of mine and a famous actor, although he's almost kind of unrecognizable in this film, as Major Chatham. Farley Granger, who is best known for Strangers on a Train and Rope from... Uh, couple decades earlier as Sheriff George Fraser. Cindy Wintrub as Lisa, Lisa Dunsheath as Sherry, and David Cedarholm as Carl. This was uh, known as Rosemary's Killer in international markets. And this one revolves around a double murder uh, right after the war in 1945. And essentially the events 35 years later connected to it. Uh, there's a killer going around stalking people. Is it the same killer? Is it a killer that has been rumored to be heading towards the town. This is a movie that throws a lot of red herrings your way. Uh, yeah, I'll let you get right into it uh, with your thoughts there, Daniel. Sure. Um, I like this a lot more than Madman. This one definitely would be a, a recommend for me if you're you know, interested in this kind of film. I'll say at the beginning, when I first hit play on this, I was, I was kind of thinking, did I hit play on the right film? Yeah. Because it opens, uh, it does that kind of cold open into a newsreel footage from the late 40s, or at mm -hmm. least a, a kind of fake newsreel. I imagine it's a real newsreel on the budget this film had. And then moves into what looks like a very 1940s-style movie. Like, it actually kind of feels 
old-fashioned, and I kind of, you know, I, I have this love for black-and-white photography, which you probably have gathered mm-hmm. from listening to me talk on this podcast enough. I was kind of immediately drawn in just by the conceit at the beginning. I kind of wish all the sequences in the 1945 sequence were in black and white. Just yeah, for, that'd be uh, cool. But I understand how in the audience in 1981 didn't really want to, you know, that was not commercially viable at all at yeah. that period. That was, that was kind of my one bit with that little sequence was, oh, I'd love to see this little bit in black and white. Um, moves on to the modern day. Again, it's a dead teenager movie, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of moves along. It's uh, kind of much more, I'll say it's much more atmospheric. It actually kind of the long sequences of people wandering around in the woods, or not in the woods, but, you know, houses or uh, around bushes or whatever. They're shot and edited, and you, you feel much more kind of claustrophobic. You feel like there's something skulking in the shadows. It uh, is more effective, mm-hmm. uh, just on just on a technical level. Um, I know it has a much higher budget than uh, Batman did, so, uh, yeah. you know, but, but again, not all of that is, you know, not all of that is, is just a budgetary thing. It's just, it's just kind of based on, you know, just how the film is shot and edited. And uh, the performances uh, work pretty well. This one kind of held my attention all the way through. I do think that there's this, uh, you know, idea of the, uh, the kind of the sons of the fathers coming back and uh, the, the kind of uh, the GI killer kind of idea that the movie doesn't really do anything with beyond its yeah. first, you know, 20 minutes or so. And then the reveal at the end I thought was kind of completely unearned. You know, I, I didn't maybe watching it again. I went back actually after I finished the film, and I went and watched kind of selected sequences again. And I guess they're kind of hinting at certain things, but yeah. uh, you know, I I don't know that it that knowledge pays off in any way in the in the structure of the film. But uh, this one again, much much better film overall. Um, the gore effects are amazing. I guess it's Tom Savini in his prime. Mm-hmm. So I did look on the Wikipedia page about this one. So you know, I, I did realize I, I was like, wow, the gore effects are, are really <laughs> nice on this. I'll bet it's Tom Savini. And then I clicked, oh, yeah, it's Tom Savini. I'm proud of myself for knowing the work of Tom Savini on uh, a glance. But yeah. um, I, I will say, you know, just because I'm the, I'm the one to kind of intellectualize these things a little bit, the uh, nudity in the film um, is, A, uh, quite nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the way that the film is edited, you know, it, it really plays with that idea that the nudity and the violence go hand in hand. Because um, the girl in the shower, I mean, you, you get your first kind of look at her, her breasts, just as the uh, the pitchfork is going through, mm-hmm. and uh, the the blood draining out of her, and you know that sort of thing. I mean, it's it's uh, really definitely playing with the audience's expectations. And then later on, the uh, the girl who gets killed in the pool. My favorite gore effect is actually the knife going through her neck. Yeah, really effectively done. You know, as she dies, you kind of get you know like a shot of her bum, and you get just a little bit of a you know like it's it's you know it, it's treated in this lascivious manner. I'm not sure what the filmmaker's trying to say about it, but I thought it was interesting, you know, that, that there was this kind of uh, pairing of these these images, at least those two instances, you know, the, the most sexualized these characters are are when they are dying, when they are being attacked by the killer. It, it, that it can either like, be nice or very dark, depending on how you look at it. But It feels like the killer's motivations kind of aren't, aren't earned. Like, it, it just feels like, oh, he's just killing because, hey, we need someone to kill teenagers. He had to kill two people back in 30 years ago, but why is he all of a sudden killing again? Like, they do make a thing about they're restarting the dance or whatever that happened on the night. So I guess they're trying to imply that there's some sort of maybe trigger went off in the guy's brain uh, because of that. 
but uh, it, it looks like they're also sort of connecting like sexual, young sexuality to uh, basically triggering his violent tendencies as well. When they show the girl fully nude in the shower being stabbed, you know that's where you first get the, the the view of her basically fully nude is when the pitchfork is in her and she's starting to bleed to death. A shot of the girl in the swimming pool with her with her butt and, and, and legs and stuff, which usually would be really nice to look at. All of a sudden, you've got all this blood starting to flow down into the swimming pool and, and turn all the water red. It's almost like the director was trying to uh, make everyone feel really uncomfortable for <laughs> wanting right. to see wanted to see them nude and see and see them and see them sexy. The death scenes in this are actually fantastically done. Tom Savini has said that this is his favorite movie he's worked on. He thinks it's his best work as, as far as his effects go. And I'm hard, I find myself hard-pressed to disagree because uh, there are some really great ones here. Uh, Paul points out in the comments that uh, he thinks the uh, shower scene was the uh, best shower death scene ever, Eat Your Heart Out Psycho. Um, uh, I'm, I got a, I got a heart on for Psycho, sorry, but, you know. <laughs> he, said the, he said the one with, with the, uh, the bayonet being put down to the guy's skull and coming out at the bottom of his jaw. That is fantastically done, and how they got the guys, uh, well, they used the puppet, of course, but they had the guy's eyes roll all the way up, and you see the whites of his eyes, really effective looking. And Paul, of course, says, even though they were being stabbed while they were nude, it was still nice to look at. (laughs) (laughs) He's just fantastic. I mean, the girl at the beginning, she was was gorgeous. I I will, uh, I'm in no way, I was like, you know, that's, uh, you know, I would would like to see her in more films, and then I looked her up, and it's like, oh, she did like two of the movies. It's funny uh, looking looking at the IMDb credits and just kind of glancing through. I tend to find a lot, you know, a lot of these forgotten early '80s gems, and you just kind of go, "Man, I I need to like watch some of these just for uh, just for shits and giggles. Like, go dig them up and see, you know, what what they were, what they were all about. What you know, mainstream comedies in 1981 looked like, you know." Yeah, uh, Paul says uh, slashers of the era for the one-hit wonder film star. Yeah. The only people who really want, went on to do anything, of course, Lawrence Tierney still had some films in his uh, in his future, like Reservoir Dogs, most probably most notable one. And uh, Christopher Goutman, who was the uh, young deputy or sheriff, he went on to do something with tons of fucking daytime soaps. Like <laughs> that was that was his that was his career after that. So you know. Yeah, I was looking. There was uh, one of the uh, writers or directors or something, or maybe he ended up. Maybe that was it. He ended up directing like 106 episodes of you know, As the World Turns or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Hey, whatever you want to do. Well, it's um, a career. I I can't. You know, you can't complain about it. The opening is like you said. It's done really well. It kind of reminded me a bit of the town that dreaded sundown and how it sort of yeah, captures I was, that. I had that thought too. Yeah. yeah post. I don't think it was as effective as the town that dreaded sundown. No. Um, it, it felt a little. Uh, a little generic in terms of the way it was shot, you know, and, and maybe that's just kind of the early 80s of it, just kind of feel, all those movies kind of feel the same. Of course, The Town of Dread Sundown had a lot more time to, you know, sort of really capture that era because the entire film set in that era, so, you know, that's kind of an unfair comparison in that, that way. But uh, like I said, it throws some pretty subtle red herrings out there. Like, uh, eventually you sort of come to the conclusion, oh, yeah, it must be this person who, who's the actual killer. But for, for a while there, it definitely throws a bunch of different people out there. There's the uh, Carrie ending in this, where, you know, it's the, <laughs> the, the <laughs> sort of the, the sort of dream sequence shock ending for a second there, whatever, the sort of false ending. The uh, interesting, the, uh, the poor uh, girl who, got, who was in the swimming pool there, uh, it took 18 takes for her. Uh, being kicked in the face before they got the uh, the shot they wanted. Oh God! 
Yeah. Oh, poor girl. The effect, the, the really great effect uh, at the end there where the killer finally gets his, they did a plaster cast of the guy's face, and apparently he wasn't too happy with it. Apparently he whimpered and whined the whole time when he was having it done on him. But they actually shot a real shotgun. Uh, they, it wasn't blanks. They shot a real shotgun to blow up the head uh, for that for that shot. So That's awesome. Yeah, really effectively done. Uh, this this one again, it's it's a bit better constructed, a uh, bit more interesting than Madman, but at the same time, it's also fairly standard for this kind of yeah, film. Like, uh, there's, there's... but it, I think it works more or less. It does. Whereas it does. I think yeah. that Madman for me just kind of didn't build anything. This was this mm. definitely felt like the there, there was more of a walls are closing in element to this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite uh, sequences, which kind of goes nowhere but kind of doesn't is the bit with the uh, hotel clerk uh, the, the guy the fat guy with the beard uh, <laughs> uh, playing solitaire um, yeah. who doesn't want to get his fat ass out of the uh, out of the chair <laughs> yeah and, sure uh, I can go check for you yeah sure no problem um, you know I'll, I'll say that was that was kind of one of those like once you realize what's what's going on you know, there, there's a, there's kind of a haunting element to that, maybe. Um, mm. Once you kind of realize who the king really was, and you know, kind of what you might have discovered if you had actually done that. But then again, it's kind of, you know, it, it builds tension just through a shot of a dude just sitting and playing solitaire. Yeah. Screenplays are all about structure, and movies are all about, you know, kind of building little pieces onto one another. And uh, sometimes it's not what you're looking at; it's what, what's not happening that can, uh, that can really build that tension. I, I thought it was really well done. I thought it was, uh, you know, nice. And the fact that you're just sitting and looking at this guy for, you know, a good two or three minutes in the middle of this film, you know, which should have, should be your, you know, the point of the film where you're getting the most kind of movement. You have this this big still sequence where, and then there's just the sheriff sitting on the phone, <laughs> like, come on, you know. Yeah. He's a little like tapping a pencil at one point, I thought. Um, you know, a bold choice, but I think it works very well. Yeah, it's both a tension uh, builder, but it's also uh, a bit of a little comic relief thing, too. You're right, the film becomes very claustrophobic as it goes on, and it really ramps up the tension. So you get a little breather for the audience there just for just for a couple minutes. I thought, like I said, again, it's, it's, it's a very standard structure, but it, it works very well. I think uh, a lot of people overlook this film. Like, this is another one that's considered definitely sort of a more of a cult classic slasher than a lot of them. Part of the reason is because its distribution was really bad back in the day. Uh, they, they eventually, like someone actually, this was a million dollar budget film. There was a distribution company that offered them $750,000 if they could get the distribution rights. So that would have been $750,000 of the budget right there. They turned it down to opt to distribute the film themselves. And uh, this film was a money loser. It, it was it was a box office failure. So uh, there you go. <laughs> you know, proving proving that the uh, the business of um, show business is as important as the the artistic side in some cases. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, um, not a great film. You know, for me, but uh, mm-hmm. entertaining. And this would be one I I might actually visit again. I would I would actually sit down and uh, could possibly see myself in, enjoying it. You know, uh, I do wish. It is kind of one of those things where watching this on a you know kind of a, a television screen or a computer screen, um, sitting on my couch kind of defeats the purpose of these kind of films. Mm-hmm. I feel like you know um, watching it in a, on a big screen in the dark, or you know at a drive-in movie theater, you know that sort of thing where you can't just hit stop and go and you know play with the dog or whatever would probably help 
you know, the experience of these films where even something like Madman would probably would have worked. I mean, I was thinking Madman would really would have worked a lot better on the big screen. That like, yeah. kind of being in that environment would would make it, you know, because you kind of have no choice but to look at the screen, you know. So uh, you, it, it you, would uh, be uh, it, it would be nice to watch Madman in like uh, like a rural drive-in theater where there's a lot yeah. of woods around, you know. That mm-hmm. that would probably uh, really help it a lot, but. Uh... They should still remake Mad Men. Anyone listening out there, you big money producers listening to this podcast, remake Mad Men. I'll throw five dollars in your Indiegogo if if that's what it takes. You know. You know, I will. I will double that. I'd throw ten dollars in your Indiegogo. <laughs> there you, you go. Know, you know, if there's a get a get a get a good name behind it. Get 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 some. Uh, get a good script. You know, <laughs> start with go with the concept and then write a good script. That's that's the uh, that's. The, can uh, we get pa- the guy behind uh, Death Snow on it? I, I'd watch yeah. that. Yeah, that would be that'd be interesting. Uh, Paul says uh, also just watch horror films at night in the woods alone and <laughs> see see what the difference is. Uh, they they actually have a screening I think they do uh, of Jaws where they put everyone in like a swimming pool. Yeah, they put yeah. everybody in a swimming pool and you're like you you have like a floaty or whatever you're you're, yeah. you're sitting in an inner tube and then you know they they show the movie. I think that's uh, that's awesome. I can only that's, imagine. <laughs> that's fucking ingenious. That's great. Yeah, I love that. Uh, right. Paul, I'm going to ask you here. Where, uh, you can you can message me. Have you ever told ghost stories by a campfire? He says, indeed. indeed. Yeah. The reason being because when I was watching the beginning of Mad Men, I was like, I have never fucking sat around a campfire and told ghost stories. Is this the thing that anyone does? And I thought, Paul's done it. I know Paul has sat around a campfire and told fucking ghost stories. Leo's well. 50-50 on Yeah, I figured you might have, might not have. No, maybe as a kid, maybe when I was in the Boy Scouts or something, but I never never as an adult, so, you know. So, yeah, I, I think uh, definitely a bit of a higher recommendation from both of us for The Prowler. It's definitely one worth seeking, um, and it's and it's definitely a bit of a lesser-known one. It's, it's one of those ones where you might have saw it back in the day on a video shelf, and you're just like, eh, I'm not going to watch this one. I'm just going to go for... Uh, uh, actually, uh, a good comparison one is My Bloody Valentine, which sort of has a similar plot as well, to a certain degree, and the killers look a lot the same, so <laughs> I, th- I think a lot of people might have went for My Bloody Valentine uh, back then, because that one had a bit of a gorier cover and stuff like that, so that one might have... Uh, yeah, Paul says they were both released the same year, and they had similar elements. But yeah, uh, I definitely recommend it. I, I assume you... Yeah, no, I definitely, I would recommend The Prowler. If you're comparing the two, The Prowler is absolutely the better film, no question. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Citizen Kane compared to Batman. <laughs> Again, this is this is sort of one of those, uh, get a bunch of friends together, put it on the big screen, yeah. have some beers and some popcorn, and uh, go to town on some uh, classic horror movies. All right, uh, Daniel, would you like to tell everyone about your Doctor Who podcast? Sure. I have a Doctor Who podcast called Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who Love Story. I do it with my wife. You can find it at Oi Spaceman. That's oispaceman.livesin.com. Uh, we're taking a little break from the uh, classic Who. We're going to do in the next couple of weeks going to be some new Who. Uh, we're doing uh, the Series 8 recap, which I've already recorded, which is going to be interesting. If you've never tuned into the podcast before, this might be the one to tune into. And uh, then after that, we're going to do uh, 10th Doctor Story, Turn Left. So the uh, 15 people listening to this, nobody watches Doctor Who. Nobody cares, but you can find me there if you're so. <laughs> and hopefully uh, we'll be moving over to Paul here for uh, audio. <laughs> oh, I forgot to mention the crazy-ass new wave uh, band at the in uh, the Prowler. Oh, yeah. They, they have these, like, three guys on a stage, and you shoot them for, for one angle, and you just have partygoers in front of them, and then you just keep cutting back to that same shot. 
for uh, for the entire movie. Like, and they uh, were yeah. in, in their first couple songs they were playing were like typical sort of prom kind of dance kind of stuff, you know, for kids or whatever of the era. And then like the third song they were playing was like the lyrics were all about watching you bleed and stuff like that. I was like, okay. <laughs> Thematic resonance, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> All right, now we're back with Paul, and we're going to be talking some slasher movies. Uh, we unfortunately couldn't get Paul on the audio the previous night, but we have him here now. We're just going to get uh, his thoughts on the two movies we covered, Madman and The Prowler. So uh, if you'd like to start with Madman there, Paul, uh, you, you want to give your uh, general uh, impressions of the film and what you think about it. Okay. Well, I'm here now, and uh, I... Basically, I'm only going to just sparsely mention on, on what you guys have already talked about. Pretty in-depth for what you win on both films. So I'm just going to go on to my little rant here. Um, probably one of the ugliest hunks in a film. For me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this squirrely Italian that wants to get in everybody's pants. That's fun. And very forward. I like that. He's a forward. He knows what he wants. He yeah. Knows it, even though he wouldn't... Uh, Scare the pants off a sheep was basically <laughs> that's interesting. The camp, uh, the overall movie's great. I like the the style of it. It's a very bare bones, um, mm-hmm. straight to to the genre before the genre actually had its merits. I don't really know how to describe it other than that. It, it it's it's solid to the genre or more above to the to the genre because the genre at the time, to me anyway, wasn't fortified yet. Mm-hmm. It didn't have its standards. You know yeah. what I mean? So. It was nice. And um, the ending kind of coincides with the idea of the legend because you can't have a legend if everything finishes. If you, yeah. you know what I mean? You can't have the legend if it does, if, if it has a concrete conclusion. So yeah. the house burns, things happen. Hopefully, I'm not spoiling this movie from 1982 for you. <laughs> uh, you know, he, you never see a death. This is the one when I actually watched it a couple different times. I was wondering, like, okay, I'm like, I see hay and candles. This thing's got to go up in flame, you know. But um, first time I watched it, I didn't expect the, you know, the um, simple, simple wound to distract him enough to get the house on fire. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I thought I, I, I was actually expecting a concrete finish, and then when I get it, oh, I get it. There you go, because it's the legend. The legend lives, Madden. Yeah. As you said, the wandering douchebag through the, <laughs> world, uh, you know, finally. Um, you know, at the end is traumatized, even mm-hmm. though it's perfectly fine the whole time. Yeah. So walk through the woods and go exploring with not a problem. Never seemed to run for help at all either. And, no, and no. Perfectly fine, but I'm traumatized. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know how he got traumatized at the very fucking end after, you know, he had spent the entire movie. Like he went to the dude's house. He found like skeletons and dead bodies and stuff in a cellar. He seen the guy stalking around the woods with a fucking axe. And then by the fun, finally by the end of the film he gets he gets found in the fucking roadside by the uh, head counselor or whatever the older guy and then all of a sudden he's like he's real he's real <laughs> Man, he's real <laughs> but you know maybe he doesn't like fire I don't know yeah I don't know traumatized <laughs> that oof flame can't do it uh, it's fine by the campfire though so that fucking theory's down the drain yeah uh, what a douchebag. But, you know, so so a loose plot there. Um, Not a bad movie at all. Uh, Little little plot, little failures here and there of, like, atomic things. Like when he jumped on her her head and cut her head off. Her arms were in the truck, too, but nothing happened to those. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, her, her whole upper body was in. And, you know, there you go. I think it would be better if she was, like, locked in, like the trunk was crushed and she was just in there. Yeah. Because if you're really horny, you can just pop up the back of her and she's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty interesting. The kills were pretty good. I like the mm-hmm. fact that a lot of the kills were not – you're basically saving money by not showing a lot of the kills all the way, if you know what I mean. But the ones that did happen were very effective. Yeah, like uh, Daniel and I were saying, the the, the first one there with the, uh, with the rope, the hanging, was like really yeah. well done. I did, uh, the, uh, that and wasn't the, uh, the chef – the cook the drunk oh yeah yeah the chef got his throat ripped out yeah the first one that got killed um you guys were mentioning about the uh, lack of campers and obviously if you watch the film uh you see that but i always got the vibe it was the end of the season most of them were already gone there was just the stragglers that were left waiting to go. yeah that could be that could be uh, uh, yeah. uh idea that i was getting on there um surprising when i watched it and i always keep forgetting that this and i always watch it again and go oh yeah, he doesn't die, does he? Because yeah. I'm always expecting the counts, the head counselor to die in these films anymore. Mm-hmm. And I watched it over again. I go, no, he lives the whole time. That's right. Yeah, that's the weird thing. It's like you go back. Like I hadn't seen this one. Like when I when I first saw this one, it was like I don't know, maybe the 1990s, somewhere around then. Um, you you go into this one having expectations of what the genre was by then. So when you go into it, you're expecting, okay, Galen Ross is going to be the final girl. She's going to kill Madman Mars and survive. Uh, you think the head counselor, who's the experienced older guy who can take charge, he's going to come back and, like, I'm going to fuck you guys up. I'm going to fuck this fucking monster up. And no, he doesn't even get killed. He, you know, he, he's just, you know, he's just there at the end. That's all. <laughs> well, we were going to get, like, Adam Bomber, Mike Awesome as the head guy, but we got this scrawny Italian guy, so just kill him. <laughs> to rewrite the whole damn thing it was interesting the, the cocky the cocky jock i mean because he tried to play it uh, as best as he could um and it, it was a stab in the face you know i i can do this i can just do pull up we'll be all right don't worry yeah. about it. oh shit he's back you know i like that you know like it, oh he's gonna get out he's gonna get out no he's not gonna get out yeah. uh, the best thing about the film is the is madman and uh well tits are good too but, yeah, um, they made sure to make sure you all know that he's not human anymore. Mm-hmm. The human in him is dead. He doesn't make a single human noise in the movie. And that's the other thing. Like he never makes a humanized noise. It's always some kind of crazed, like animalistic. It's not as bad as like Slaughterhouse where the guy oinks the whole time. But like the the noises he makes are not contrary to normal human. He's almost uh, he's almost like Sasquatch with an axe at this point. Yeah, basically like, he, he he formed into a snatch squatch, and yeah. and he can't smell himself now because the nose thing. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. I liked the uh, kind of the uh, macabre gallery in the basement. I like mm-hmm. I like the scene. I like the film footage. I like the way it was filmed. I like the darkness the film has to his. The deaths are good, like I said. When when uh, when Poodle Girl gets hit with the axe, I think that's a very very fun scene. I think I actually like that whole chase scene with her, especially when she hides in the fridge. Hides in the fridge, yeah. You know what I mean? That's I would expect to see a film based on mocking that, where a guy or something like you know one of the Wayans brothers hides in the fridge and then sees beer in the fucking side racks and starts drinking it. You hear the yeah. You know the crack and open noise, and the killer wakes up, and he's like half fucking lit. That would be funny. <laughs> oh, if they were if they were making the sc- the scary movie fucking films back in the day, they probably would do that. Bobby, Bobby Wood did that. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm like, hey, by by the way, 
throw that in the movie. Oh, that's a great idea. But other than that, it's not a bad movie. It's above standard for the genre because the genre, like I said, wasn't exactly absorbed by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Daniel doesn't like it very much. There's not a lot of meat to it. I'm one of those guys that would take a plain steak with a little salt and pepper on it. Then I would do, you know, a whole goulash meal with all these sides and trimmings. I would rather have something simplistic and, and meaty yeah. than, than that. And that's what this has. It's very plain Jane. It's got a nice little spice and, and a cool nuance. Um, I think the vibe, the, the legend vibe, if you don't know it, I always think those, those make for fun films. Because legends are better than just a, a serial killer. You know, they yeah. always have legend in there. It makes the camp camp things a little bit more interesting. Uh, like like the burning, it's more of a, oh, this happened back in the day. That's it. And then they didn't actually expect them to come back or anything like that. Yeah. Like, like sleepaway camp. You don't have a legend. You don't have anything. It's more just a straight slasher for no reason. This is yeah. more of just the thing. Um, a lot of the nuances in the film, like when he hides in the tree line and stuff, I really do like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madman is a bit padded. If you walk, if he walks like he's got a dump in his pants half the time, <laughs> like he's wearing like you know a Santa suit underneath his long johns because he's just kind of like do 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 he's not really um, like a Jason that is just charging through the woods, not running but just stomping straight yeah. forward, not a fight. He's he's kind of cumbersome. It looks like at times, and then times half the time he's like running through the damn woods on like an ape, like just going. Mm-hmm. To not a problem. I'm sprinting through the woods. Woohoo! Walks. He starts waddling. I'm like, okay. Two different people. Uh, it's pretty fun. It's a fun film. I like it. Yeah. Now, um, it's not anything overblown, but it's good. Yeah, it's a good film. I wouldn't. Uh, if you're if you're a camp killer, you know, uh, slash, slasher guy, and you haven't seen this one, definitely watch it because I think you'll appreciate it. If you're looking for deep contemplation about stuff, I wouldn't really go for this one. You know. Mm-hmm. Why is he doing it? Why is he doing it? Look at him. Why wouldn't he? If I looked like that, I'd be cutting people up left and right. It's okay. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, I do like the idea when they first tell the story of it, you know, how he snapped and killed his whole family. That mm-hmm. you start, you think, you, you do stop for a little bit and go, wonder what happened. Yeah, you know what? But he was already a fuckwad before he snapped. Like, you know, he wasn't a pillar of community, then snapped and decided to go kill his family. He was a douche yeah. anyway. But yeah, pretty good. Pretty good film overall. Uh, okay, so we'll move on and we'll uh, get your thoughts on The Prowler. Okay, The Prowler, 1981. That's a good film. That's a film that I didn't appreciate because I didn't get a chance to really sit down and watch it when I grew up. Mm-hmm. So this one was a film that I was introduced to in the last few years. So it was, it was actually it was one of those films that you get pissed off when you watch it. Because you're like, where the fuck were you my whole life? I have a similar memory of when my mom started buying Mountain Dew and I realized it was out since the 70s. <laughs> What's wrong with you? What kind of mother are you waiting this long to buy this, bitch? Uh, but uh, the, the Prowler is definitely a, a nice film. It's got Tom Salvini probably at his best. The death scene... Um, in the shower, I still think, and I'm still blown away by it when I watch it. I go, oh my god, this this film, this the, the gore effects are so realistic, so well done. Um, geez, I like that. I mean, they weren't shy. They weren't shy. shy yeah. But the, the nudity in the film and the sexuality is weird. It's covert. It's not exactly in your face all the time. Like some of these uh, films, that if, if the gore effects are super overblown, 
the tits are super overblown. If you act, no, it, usually if you see the acting is, is subpar. That's why they do it. Overall, it's good. She could have been nude in the pool. That really would have helped for me. You know, <laughs> I'm fine with that. The, the the gore effects are great. I know you guys love the pool scene. The, mm -hmm. I mean, the the knife through the throat is definitely effective. The the two scenes that go through with the shower are still my favorite. That creeped me out the first time I watched him pull his eyes up into his skull. Oh yeah, that's the, both, both both those kills are brutal. Like the right to the skull, and and his and you see the whites of his eyes, like just so well done. And then the pitchfork in the shower is just, uh, it, it's really just almost makes you want to cringe just because it doesn't kill her right away. She's just basically pinned to the fucking wall and just yeah. like slowly dying. Yeah. The, uh, the, the film basis, the plot is like many other, the many, many of these other ones that you've seen, you know, get a plot that's probably as wide as cunt hair and just say, okay, then I'll start killing. There you go. Yeah. You know what I mean? A loose plot based on something that happened long ago. They banned it and they're going to bring it back. And that, that means the killer is still around and it, it some, triggers something in him and he comes back and starts killing again. I was hooked on the Prowler as soon as the first death scene happened because I wasn't expecting it. And I was oh, making out, boom, pitchfork through right through both of them. I'm like, okay, this film's awesome. Wow, I'm, I'm already like, I already love this film. I just, the first death. Cool. And that one, and even that one's kind of, um, almost kind of slow and brutal in a way because he gets the initial pitchfork into the dude's back, but then he has to kick it in a little more to get to her and then kick it in even more to finish her off. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Just, she's pinned. She can't do anything. She's mm -hmm. like, Oh shit. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it has the newsreel footage at the beginning. I mean, yep. you guys have already gone over all this stuff and the kooky band. Yeah. <laughs> that's all right. And was the old, uh, I was, I was confused. Was the old guy in like 35 years later that was at the dance? Was he supposed to be the band leader from back then? I can't I remember. I don't even know. I can't even remember that yeah. one didn't notice yeah. that part. Yeah, because there was an old guy saying, oh, this is the way it used to be with all the kids dancing and stuff. And I'm like, uh, is that supposed to be the band leader from before? I can't remember. But, oh, uh... Yeah. I mean, boy, that, is, that, is that the stereotypical phrase that everyone says? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, true. But well, uh, One of the things that I can tell you now, watching these old older movies again, women just aren't... They're hot in a different way now. They're not hot like they were back then. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, the women back in the in the in the seventies and early eighties and stuff. For me, they just have a hotness of their own. Maybe there's a different level of modesty that yeah. makes you makes you uh, more uh, interested in in what they have to say and what they have to show compared yeah. to now. They definitely understood that that just plain cotton panties were hot back then. Mm -hmm. It's Veronica's, you know, Victoria's Secret. It's not so secret when you're using a string. Yeah. <laughs> One of the problems I noticed with this film, and I didn't mention it when I was talking to Daniel, there, there's a couple characters that just sort of disappear from the film. Uh, uh, Lawrence Tierney's character, the, uh, what, the major or whatever who's in the wheelchair, he just sort of vanishes from the film. Like, he's a red herring suspect for half the film, and then he just, they never really find out where he went. He just sort of disappears. Yeah, and also there's the uh, more geeky couple in the dance who go down the basement to have sex, and you think there's going to be a stock scene where someone's going to come out and kill them, and it never happens. It just it just it's just left up in the air that whatever happens to them, it's like they hear a noise. It's like I think I heard something. Oh, it's probably just the wind, and then they cut away and they never come back to it. 
Well, I think with that one, it was probably there was probably something, and they just it didn't go out right, and they cut it out of the film. I think it probably might just be one of those things where it's monetary budget restraints, and it just didn't go right. And they're like, you know what, just fuck it. Why they yeah. didn't cut out the whole scene? I'm not really sure because it does feel fragmented away from what's actually going on. It help anything? What happened with Mister Wheelchair? No one will ever know because no he never shows up. He never shows up after that. The uh, Overall, I didn't actually, and I'm talking to you, I already mentioned this, I didn't get a chance. To, I, I should have got the chance to sit down and rewatch both of these movies before the podcast so I could really pick things apart and talk about mm-hmm. it more. But I, with uh, kid constraints, I didn't get a chance to do that. I'm going by memory more than going by memory instead of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. Uh, you, I just remember tits in movies. I don't remember anything else. Uh, the Prowler, it's solid. It's a solid storyline. Mm-hmm. It's something that you kind of understand. It's, it doesn't need explaining. Uh, it, it echoes similar to the film of the same year, of uh, the one that had a better pu- uh, publicity and better production rates and better distribution, which is My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. Uh, the Valentine's Day dance. They're bringing it back, and it makes Harry go fucking ape shit and starts killing people. My Bloody Valentine had the extra appeal of a dark, creepy cave uh, mm-hmm. mine shaft that it could play off the light and shadow and darkness and stuff. And and both uh, surprisingly, I'm surprised there wasn't more of a uh, a problematic situation with the characters' appearances. Because yeah, we know that they're gas masks used for different reasons. Yeah, but they're still fucking gas masks. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? And it's like. Well, we were going to have them use a pickaxe, and then that movie started up, so they called us and said, if you use a pickaxe, we're going to break your leg, so we had a pitchfork instead. <laughs> One of those kind of deals, I'm not sure, because um, the pitchfork was a really cool tool to use, mm-hmm. but being in this, the Prowler look he had was very militant. Yeah. I was assuming it'd be more like bayonets and, and things like that. Pitchfork was a little bit more Friday the 13th you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was, I was kind of expecting that, I mean, if they were going for the whole uh, World War II thing, should have been like bayonets and maybe like a, an, an M1 rifle or... Maybe um, with some barbed wire. Or... Yeah, or like even like a landmine or something like that. I mean, he does pull out a gun at the end of the film, but at that even then it's like a shotgun instead of like an M1 or something like that. <laughs> Like it's not like it's the uh, like a Ruger or some kind of hand. Yeah. That, that oh man, like, yeah, fucking a fucking Ruger or something would have been like perfect. Like mm-hmm. that would have been. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that would have really fit in his outfit and everything, the style of the gun and things. Uh, film at the end when they have the final like roughhousing segment where he's mm. a girl. At first, I was like, oh, so the dad just turns around with a shotgun and blows him away. That's it. You know, I'm like, oh, that was anticlimactic. Then, then, then it actually gets going. Obviously, the the spooky. I'm actually not dead, and they started wrestling around, and it, and actually kind of the way, <laughs> little white panty in there, having a good time. Uh, I like, uh, you know, the, of course the uh, the woman uh, throws a throws a set and starts fighting back. You know, what I mean that was pretty interesting. And uh, yeah, she reminds me of uh, who's it? Uh, Amy Steele from Friday the Thirteenth Part Two, I think. Yeah. I, she reminds me, I don't know how to describe it, because it's just that kind of shy, slender blonde kind of a look that, yeah. uh, you know, I wouldn't say Texas Chainsaw or anything like that, more like, you know, that it's hard she's, to describe. She's, a, she's like the good girl, like she's the kind of girl you might meet in a library or something like that. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. 
she's not the she's not a party girl. Let's put it that way. She's not. No, a, and, and you know that's. I mean that that follows the thing. If you do sex, drugs, you know anything like that, you will die, and yeah. that's that's good. Although she totally wants to bone the uh, deputy sheriff, like for the whole movie, though. <laughs> um, finally, at the end, the, the movie definitely goes out with a bang. And that's, that's such a great effect. It's a great effect, and Tom Salvini again. If you want to watch a film with a decent plot line, okay acting, no mm-hmm. proper acting, and great effects, you watch The Prowler. Yeah, and you'll be just as pissed as I was that you didn't see it already. that's one of those things and and it's and it's the film company's problem that we didn't see this film so uh, yeah yeah it was the producer who uh didn't want to didn't want to take money to have another company distribute his uh, film he says no fuck it we're not going to take your seven hundred fifty thousand dollars of our million dollar budget we're not going to accept that we're going to try to distribute it ourselves and that's why the movie went to obscurity and made no money right right so epic fail there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I mean, if this film would have got a proper production value, laser disc releases and stuff like that, because I've never seen a laser disc release of it. Blue Underground did another beautiful release, like they yes. do pretty much everything they do. They, their Blue Underground has always been um, one of the tops for me for DVD releases. Mm-hmm. Lucky Thirteen did a slaughterhouse. I have, I'm not sure if Lucky Thirteen did the Prowler either, but uh, they usually do okay. Uh, not as good as Blue Underground. Um, now we have new ones like Scream Factory and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, they're the new. They're actually, I, I'd say Scream Factory is essentially the new Blue Underground at this point. And I know, I think they did um, Maniac Scream, uh, but I don't think they did the Prowler yet. Actually, someone's doing a. a someone just did. Now look forward if you guys want to. Um, Blu-ray, a, a special Blu-ray edition with a documentary and everything about the making of Madman. Yeah, so definitely check that one out if you're if you're curious. Madman is a film that if you like genres of horror, you're really into horror and the, the camp kind of, you know, spooky bullshit like that, you're gonna like it. Yeah, you're not. These are both of these are not bad movies. Yeah, I, I don't hate Madman or thing. Like I like it. I'm just I feel like it doesn't quite work as well as like a lot of the films of the same type. And I definitely enjoy the Prowler quite a bit. Like I'm, I'm watching the Prowler and I'm thinking, this is just as good, if not better, than like the first Friday the Thirteenth. I mean, it deserves the same status as Friday the Thirteenth, as far as I'm concerned. And I was, uh, I, I think the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's either on par or slightly better. I would actually take the Prowler, especially over like Part Two, Friday the Thirteenth Two. I would take probably the Prowler over that. I don't know if it's meeting Betsy Palmer and stuff like that, but like I had to go back and rewatch Friday the Thirteenth Part One, and they had a it has a nice feel to it. Uh, definitely, definitely the Prowler is something that if if you like the styles of the Friday the Thirteenth film, you'll love the Prowler. All right, uh, Paul. If you want, if you'd like to tell the uh, listeners uh, where they can find you on the uh, internets. Okay, well, you can find me at PA Brew News, which is three words on Facebook, one word on YouTube, PA Brew News, and for beer reviews and random, very random, very, very random uh, movie updates. I try to do now if I get it, get the time, get the time to do it. And if you want to hear some really bad metal, listen to uh, go to YouTube at Funeral Dust Six Six Six. Right on, and. Uh... Okay, thank you, Paul, for uh, joining in, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You'll 
hear all the particulars of where you can find us and stuff uh, at the end of this. And excuse me, we're going to go out with uh, Madman Mars theme song. Lord of the campfire, the Great film. Great song. Yeah. Uh, apparently there's a metal version out you mentioned. Yeah, there there is like a there's a metal there's a metal version uh, I saw on YouTube. There's a couple covers. Uh, I think you just have to write in uh, uh, Madman 1982 theme song cover, and I think it will come up. So and I know we were talking before that that the film really that's a really great film for that song, even though it's a little hokey at times. I like the harp the fake harpsichord kind of sound it has. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there is not the acapella version plus. The yeah. Song. Yeah, which has like all the verses of the right. of the song. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye. He's real. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on site. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.